Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association, and your host, bringing you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In today's episode, Bill welcomes Kyle Samuels, known for his expertise in the field of diversity hiring and insights into the challenges and opportunities it presents. Together, they discuss the importance of proactive advocacy in the job market, the significance of building a strong professional network, and the societal judgment surrounding college choices. They also dive into the complexities of diversity hiring, exploring the benefits, potential pitfalls, and the need for true diversity beyond gender and race. Plus, they touch on the evolving landscape of pay structures based on location. Get ready to expand your understanding of diversity, leadership, and career advancement in this thought-provoking episode. Listen in. Kyle Samuels, welcome to Educational Alpha. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I think whenever we talk about the search space, which is the business you've been in, and you started your own firm about, looks like five years ago, so happy anniversary there. But you've been in and around this space for a long time. And I think COVID changed a lot of things. And I think coming out of the other side, I think the world has, I think, had maybe renewed views on what DEI means, what search means, what backed office versus in office means. And we're going to cover all of that, I hope, in the period of time we have allotted to us. But maybe a little bit of your background for perspective to start with. 100%. Hey, so my name is Kyle Samuels. I'm the founder and CEO of Creative Talent Endeavors. We do two things. We do executive search at the director and above level, and we do all types of HR consulting, DEI, O&D, comp, et cetera. Anything you have a people or cultural need, that's what we do. My background has been the last 20 years, I've either been at an executive search firm, either someone else's or my own, or I've worked in-house at organizations on various TA and HR roles, organizations like Young Brands and GE Aviation. So I kind of feel like I've touched every side of the recruiting and consulting world. Maybe just a couple of quick things on your background. And you just mentioned it a second ago, GE, um, and I think I saw EY in your background as well. So you cut your teeth on some, and earned your experience in some big organizations, and now you're an entrepreneur. How important was that big organizational background to be a successful entrepreneur, or is one not really related to the other? That's a good question. I think a lot of it depends on the individual. I will say for me, as someone who is a introvert, right? It was crucial. And so what I mean by that is there's a halo effect, right? People put legitimacy on, well, these well-known organizations employed this person and promoted him, he must be good, right? Same thing we do with school and such. But I would also say that it depends because the way our firm works about 50% of the roles we work on are for either nonprofits or VC-backed startups and the rest are 
Fortune 500 type companies, household names. And so I would say that for someone who is, say, specializing in a niche, it's probably less important that you have the big names and more important that you have relevant names. So for example, if someone was starting a search firm and they wanted to target Series B, B2B SaaS startups, and they only wanted to recruit for heads of product, you don't need all the big names, right? Like you need the legitimacy of all these startups. That's the world they care about. But for me, having that kind of gave people, I think, for especially initial clients, the confidence to say, okay, he's been vetted somehow. And I say he, because when we started, it was just myself. And that gave them some confidence, I think, in having conversations. And the other part, of course, is just because you work at these big global companies, or because I have the amount of referrals you can receive and your network is so big that it was very, very helpful. And some of my first clients were people that I'd worked for, worked with, had worked for me. So it was based on relationships. Okay. Well, I think that's good background for the conversation. So maybe a couple things to start with, Kyle, maybe bigger picture about the current state of play in the executive search space. And I think the iPhone turned everybody into a photographer and maybe <laughs> social media turned everybody into a recruiter, but it's much more complicated and nuanced than that. And I think if you want to do it yourself, you can, but there's certain maybe cost savings to perhaps go with that, but pay me now, pay me later. I think that there are certainly skills that a professional recruiting organization brings to the table. And then yet COVID on top of all this, and now I'm not sure if we're back to work or not. I think it depends on the industry, the city, et cetera. But maybe some of your broad views on this current state of play in the search space and maybe what's different today and going forward versus maybe just the last couple of years. Yeah. So I'm going to focus on executive just because that's the world we do and that's what we know. So for like hourly or middle, I'm not an expert in that. So we're going to go from the world that we live in, let's say director above, right? A couple of huge things. So like you mentioned, COVID was huge. It changed the way that people thought about things. So five years ago, it's, hey, I drive 90 minutes each way to my super awesome job. I love it. I love my team. I'm being paid well. And I live in a city where I have to drive 90 minutes a day. It is what it is, right? Who cares? Then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, the people who thought that was their life forever, if you lived in California, all of a sudden, there's a company in Colorado or New Mexico or New York saying, hey, you can work right from home and get paid well and have a great team, et cetera. And so what we've seen that change is the way that people think about work. And I think it's net positive. So in the before times, hey, Bill, we've got this great job. We want you to be CFO of Wells Fargo, but you have to move to California. Now it's a big talk with your partner and the kids and all that. But there was this understanding that, well, if this is the next step in my career. These are the sacrifices we have to make. So sorry, Sally, I know you like your school, but we're out of here, right? But now that executives realize that's not the case, and one of the other things we're finding increasingly is that when I started in search like 20 years ago, the majority of the people I talked to, whether it was a male or a female, I would say that their career wasn't the same status. So meaning that if I'm speaking to a female CMO, her partner might have a job where it's like, hey, Bill, we're moving to Florida now. And he's like, all right, cool, because she's bringing in the bacon, right? But that is not as much the case. Right now, what we're finding is, oh, I'm a senior vice president of FP&A at this bank. My husband's the CIO of this other restaurant company, right? So these two people with big careers where we can't just move because this person needs that stability and we use that income, right? And so I think what we're starting to see, and it's going to take a couple of years to shake out, there's just going to be certain companies that are very upfront about their culture and we're in the office, we wear it proudly. And for the people who love it, get the juice from that, love the energy, great. They will go to those places because there are people, I interviewed an individual for our company, CTE, and we work 100% remote. And she turned down our offer just because she was like, listen, this was 2022. She was like, through COVID, I understand about myself. 
I need to be with people in the same vibe. Like I was working with people that I've known for years at home. It wasn't the same thing. And so for me, I know that my best environment where I'm the most happy and the most effective is in the office, right? So you're going to get that. And then you get the other people who appreciate the flexibility of being able to work remote or not have to go in the office every day. And those companies are going to kind of shift out. I think that for startups and companies that are have less capital and don't even have any actual real estate in terms of like offices, it's a huge advantage. It's one of the reasons why I did it. When I started the company, I was in Charlotte, South Carolina. And Charlotte's an amazing city, but it's not a city that's known to be a hotbed of <laughs> executive recruiting and business talent. So I didn't want to only have to be able to recruit from where I lived, right? And so it was the boon for me and it's worked out well. But there are certain companies, manufacturing, et cetera, where either by necessity, you can't build a microchip in your bedroom, in your home office, or it's just the culture of being together. I think that's going to kind of shake out. And almost every client we talk to, every person I talk to, they're still trying to figure it out. Very few have just said, nope, this is it. We're done. Because they know that in this world, you can say that and your CFO might say, okay, cool. So now I'm going to talk to that recruiter who said, I don't have to move to go take this awesome job. And what about in the good old days, you mentioned relocation and coming to work for Wells Fargo in San Francisco. And, and maybe given what's gone on in San Francisco, maybe not the best example, <laughs> but it used to be if you were going to a big expensive city like a New York or a San Francisco, you would have to pay a premium. There would be a New York salary or a San Francisco salary. But now if you're remote and you're not moving to the city, has that premium sort of gotten rinsed out a little bit? And I think one of the big financial service firms in New York had come out and said, if you want to earn a New York salary, you have to be sitting in a New York office. So has COVID affected and maybe perhaps even leveled the playing field around the correlation between geography and pay scale? Yes. So I would say that it's kind of been bifurcated, meaning that there are certain companies, especially in the last couple of years, that decided to do either regional, like the Southeast region gets this, the Northeast region gets that. Or I've seen companies where 80% of the country is you get paid X for this role. But if you're in like an outlier, like a New York, a San Francisco, Miami, et cetera, DC, you make more, right? So that's one way. And then we also, I've also seen their companies say, listen, the value of the job is the value of the job. We don't care if you live in Iowa in the middle of nowhere and your property taxes are $2,000 a month or you live in a beautiful Newport Beach mansion and your property taxes are $40,000 a year or a month or whatever. We're paying you for the job and where you live is inconsequential, right? So that was one of the things that started to happen during COVID and so far so good. But what I think companies are going to start to see and it's going to start to be a question is, okay, you paid me based on this category because at the time I lived in New York, right? Now, my husband got a great job in Nebraska, which is less expensive, and I'm moving there for him. Company's not paying for it, but I've told everyone, hey, this is my new address, and all of a sudden I get it, cool, we reduced your salary 12%. It's just one of those things that I know it's very logical, and you can tell an employee that, well, we're paying you more because you're in this more expensive area, but it's a lot harder to take money away from people, even if they're moving to a less expensive place, right? And so quick example, when I used to work for GE, I moved around a lot and they did pay different ways. But if you move, say, from New York working for GE Capital to like Kentucky working for GE Aviation, they wouldn't cut your salary, right? Because, you know, you're moving around so much, it changes. But there are other companies that do say that. And I think that's where it gets kind of tough because it's just hard to claw back things. People get used to a certain level. It gets tough. 
And maybe it's more of a perspective change as opposed to change for existing workforce. And maybe one more thought on this theme, Kyle. Has this COVID maybe work approach, has it made employees more transitory in that if I'm not coming into an office, there are arguments for or against that, depending on who you're talking to. But if I'm not in the office, I don't know if I'm necessarily feeling as connected to that organization and part of a team. And the moment I don't like what I see on a Zoom screen, maybe I'm more likely to unplug and move on because I don't feel like I'm part of that employer community. Do you think we are going to see more of a transactional relationship between employee and employer and maybe shorter tenures and maybe more job hopping in the future of the person coming out of college today, for as, as an example? I think so, but I think it's less about the fact that, hey, you know, I'm not in the office drinking coffee with Bill and seeing him at the water cooler and having those kind of like ad hoc conversations that we're used to. That's a part of it. But I think the bigger reason is that the lower switching cost, right? So like we just talked about back in the day, it's okay, I have to lift and lever. We all have to move to a new state or a new city and it's very complicated. Now, this is what we told people during the pandemic. We have clients all over the country and they'll be like, oh, we compete with this, that, and the third. And we're like, no, now you compete with Google. Now you compete with Meta. Now you compete with Amazon because they're hiring people remotely, right? And so I think it's that part that it's so much easier for them to make a switch without having to physically move and uplift their life. I think it goes in conjunction, but I think the bottom part or the second aspect is more influential, right? Because there's always been people who call and, hey, you've got a great job. You want to talk to it? And people could say no. But now that they know that, I don't wait, I don't have to move. Because before it's like, hey, we're calling you for McDonald's. All you got to do is move to Chicago to headquarters. It's like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. But when McDonald's calls and says, no, 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 stay right there. Now it's like, hmm. So I do think that it's the ability to switch more frequently. And COVID played a part in it, but part of it's just like time. There is much less of a stigma on short stints than 20 years ago, right? Like you used to see someone, oh, they're only there for 18 months. Forget about them. Now it's like, 18 here, 22 months here, 1.5 years there. People are a little bit more understanding. And then the final part, Bill, I would say is that, like I mentioned before, if you're building a company and you want some amazing talent that's been pedigreed and it's okay, they're at Google for 18 months and Meta for 14 months, but now they want to come to my startup in like Nebraska. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm going to take that chance because I know that I don't have access to this level of quality talent in my local area. So I'm going to take the gamble on that remote person because holy crap, there's no one who can do that here. You know what I mean? So I think it still remains to be seen, but I think overall, there's just much less of a stigma on shorter stints. I agree with that and time will tell. But also I think on the plus side, and I look at Kai as an example, that our quote unquote headquarters or our US office was in Amherst, Massachusetts. And if we're looking to hire somebody, we would draw a circle, maybe two or three zip codes away from the office. And that was our field of search. And then with COVID, when we realized that many, many jobs could be done remotely, it allowed us to maybe be a lot more open-minded about the country or the world. And I think this is where we first met and we hired you to find a new controller for us. And the thought of having a controller not physically present in the office in 2019, as an example, I would have said, you're crazy. 
to think that that's going to work. But here we are with Bradley Ambani, who you found for us. He's based in Houston, Texas. So is maybe by flight, he's 1,500 miles away from us. But it's worked and it's worked very, very well. So I think it's allowed organizations to maybe open up their talent pool where they can pull from. And it's certainly worked well for us. And I assume that's been a constant theme for your client base as well. Yes, I will say this though. <laughs> and it's happened, it's happened. It's been a while since I've been surprised that what people will do to self-sabotage. So both people I know, other companies, other search firms, and we've had it happen to us where people have not quit their jobs, right? So like, hey, I'm so excited to start an ABC company as a controller, but I'm not leaving XYZ as the controller, right? So I'm going to do a PSA for all employers. And I always tell this to my hiring managers. And if I see it on a candidate, I ask them. If someone has taken a job at your company in the first couple of weeks, they have not updated it on LinkedIn, you should just ask them why. Because if someone joined CT and they hadn't done it, I'd want to know why. And usually what I've found is because they maybe haven't quit their other role. Or if they have, they're like, I don't know if this is really going to work out. So I'm not going to put it on here maybe for a few months until I feel like it's legit, right? For me, in both of those cases, I would have questions because you shouldn't accept a job that you don't feel comfortable enough putting on your LinkedIn on your first day, because that probably means you shouldn't have said yes to that offer. Okay. Well, a word to the wise, and I've heard of quiet quitting. I've not heard about not quitting in the first place. I'm thinking of two things that I know for real. These are not apocryphal. I talk to the people. And in both cases, we're talking total comp 300 plus, but doubling up. I'm not talking about someone trying to make ends meet. I'm talking about, why not? I'll give it a shot. And one of my friends had this happen to him during the 2020, the first year of the thing. And he just asked them why, because the client came to him and was like, hey, we got to get rid of this guy. He's just not showing up to meetings. He's not da, da, da. And he was just like, I thought I could do both. Turned out I couldn't. So I figured I might as well put my effort to the company that I've been with for the last five years. And if I get fired from this one, then hey, no harm, no foul. I still have my job, right? So yeah, it can get sticky. Okay. Well, I appreciate the insights there. So I mentioned at the top of this discussion, Kyle, uh, DE&I, and I don't know what the turning point was, but certainly from my perspective, and you can take the other side of this, as we were all at home, we all were able to witness the horrendous treatment and eventually death and murder of George Floyd. And I think that had that happened in non-COVID times where there were not as many eyeballs, I don't know if the reaction would have been the same or not. And it's horrible that it happened in the first place, but maybe we can use this as an opening to discuss where we are in DNI, how we've done, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And I think you sit in a very unique vantage point and be good to get your insights there. Oh, I love this. I love this. I love this. So we all know this is no secret. The view is like, okay, cool. The worms have got Jonas Floyd. We put up our black squares on Instagram. That was three years ago. The economy is iffy. We got to move on, right? Cool. Totally understand that. Totally understood that. But here's the thing. I think that the big issue with DEI, and I think a lot of it did come from really good intentions during COVID and all the social unrest, right? Is it, I think sometimes people think about it's more performative, right? And so it's like, okay, we're going to get a bunch of ERGs and do flags, food, and fun. Like, hey guys, this is Diwali. Let's have some delicious naan bread. Like, that's cool. There's, there's a certain value into that, right? But what I always think about is if I'm the CFO of an organization and I'm looking through things and I say, so we spin up. $150,000 for black people to hang out and have fun and you know $100,000 for our LGBTQ plus people to do it. That's fine, but what do we get out of it? Like, What is the ROI? And I think that is the issue why there's so much resistance to diversity and inclusion is that lots of companies 
They want the participation trophy. So what I mean by that is they'll say, hey, at company ABC, in 2022, we hired 20% more female executives and 40% more vendors of color. We went to 30 extra HBCUs and blah, 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 blah. Cool. But that's it. They stop. They don't say we hired 20% more female executives. And what we noticed is year over year, we had less people falling out after they had a child or something like that, which typically happens to women because they're like, oh my goodness, there's all these people who look like me and they have kids. So why would I think that I couldn't do it here? Right. So like that matters. And it shows that it wasn't just a woke or like a performative thing to do, but like you got value from that. Right. If you are crowing about the fact that your CMO is a Latina, that's cool. But what's more impressive is she was able to get us 40% more market share in Hispanic women, 28 to 54. That was something that we did not have before, right? And so what I'm getting at is you would never think about, let's pick McDonald's. McDonald's would never in their annual report say, hey, we opened up a thousand new restaurants and introduced these six new products, period. They would say, and here's how they're performing and here's how they were received, right? But again, if you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. And that is the problem that has a DEI because if I'm a skeptic at one of these companies and I'm annoyed because I want to hire someone and you said, hold on, Kyle, you can't hire your friend Bob from your last company who we admit could totally do the job, but he's white and he's male. So we need to have a diverse panel. Okay, cool. But while you guys are grabbing that panel, Bob has accepted another job, right? But then you tell me we hired someone. You still have not told me how our company was better served by losing Bob and waiting and doing a search for an extra three months to get a woman or a person of color. If there is a reason, right? So it's like our next big account is with, I don't know, the Women's Association of the World or something like that. Silly, right? Then you could say, oh, this person is going to be selling into largely female-led organizations. I get why you want that. Cool. But when you don't do that, all you get, I think, is resentment from the people in your company who aren't racist. They're not anti-anything, but they're just like, this is BS. Like we're doing it just to do it. I don't see the value in it and it's slowing me up from doing the work that I need to do. I'm laughing at it now, right? So I think that's the big issue is that it doesn't get measured. People just want, oh, we went to Black MBA. Look at us. We're so cool. Okay. What'd you do? What did we get out of it? What was the ROI on it? And so I think that's the biggest problem is not putting the results aspect into it. Yeah. And it's much more of a qualitative discussion over the long term, as opposed to just a quantitative adding up of the faces on a website. But I would imagine, Kyle, that if somebody comes to your organization and you being a black male, and, and I assume you present yourself as a minority owned search firm, or people would come to you with that perception, whether that's the right way of describing it or not, whether they say it to you or not, I assume that some of these searches have got to be, well, I'm getting pressure from my board. I'm getting pressure from this, a pressure from that. I've got to go and hire a woman or somebody of color. And do you ever turn a search down to say, I don't want to be a means to an end just to check a box. And unless you're going to tell me qualitatively how this is going to make a difference to this organization, I won't take this mandate. I've turned down searches for other reasons, not that specific one, but I will ask the question. So for example, we once did a search for a client they needed, it was a highly technical role, unfortunately, engineering software, it's typically more men than women, right? And so they decided that this person has to be a woman. The reason why is because they kind of looked around and said, oh crap, we don't have any women on our executive team. So whatever this next role is, even if it's a role that statistically says there are far less women than men, it has to be this one, right? And so sometimes we get that where it's like, 
okay, we got to kind of make up for past misdeeds or oversights. Now, in that search, I was excited because it wasn't just the, oh, we need it, but it was that they got the fact that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So by having a woman at that level, there are other people who say, oh, wow, I can be a woman in engineering and software and make it at this company and make it in this industry. So they understood that. We did the search. I'm very happy to say that we filled it with a woman, a woman of color as well. But I think the core problem is, is that people feel like they look around and instead of saying, maybe what is a role where it makes sense to say we want a person of a different ethnicity, sexuality, gender, age, whatever, right? They just say, oh, crap, whatever this next role is, got to be a black person or a woman, right? Where it maybe doesn't make the most sense or it's not as important. And so that's reactive. I think it's far more important for people to get ahead of it, right? And start building those networks before you need them. That is always my advice because then you won't find yourself in a way where you're like, hey, it has to be this. I know it's going to be tough, but it has to be this because our employers are looking around and saying, huh, looks very homogeneous on the website. Well, let me tell you, and you may not remember this with the same clarity that I do when we first approached you for this controller search. And first and foremost, we were interested in having a more diverse pool to pull from, full stop. And you certainly delivered on that front, and good talent is hard to find. I think it's maybe a little bit easier if you open it up to a national search versus maybe just a couple of zip codes outside of Amherst, Massachusetts. But as this story goes, when we came down to offer time, the very best candidate in that pool happened to be a white male. But we did have a diverse pool of candidates to pull from. And then late in that process, we had not put an offer out, Bradley showed up. And you said, hey, before we put the curtain down, there's one other person I want you folks to look at. And it happened to be Bradley, who's a black male, and we hired him, and he's been an excellent hire. So what I liked about that process was that it's not about hiring the woman or the person of color. It's about having a more diverse pool to pull from. And then out of that pool, you're going to hire the very best person. We hired the very best person who happens to be a person of color. And I think that's what makes for a successful search. And I don't know if all these searches work out that way, but I think first and foremost, you've got to get a diverse pool of candidates in front of you. And, and I think that seemed to be my recollection of the mandate that we had with you. And I give you great credit for that. I thought it was a very good process and, and the end goal met our needs. Well, first of all, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And part of that, by the way, Search firms are typically, unless they're a specific search firm, like they're homogeneous, right? Like one of the things that they do is they have a little pool of, especially if it's diversity, certain people, and they don't like to make new friends. So here's Kyle. You're looking for, oh, I don't want Kyle. Okay, well, maybe we can squeeze him in this next search. And one of the things that I get feedback from the big firms that people don't like is that they feel like instead of listening to the client saying, we need this, this, and this, they're saying, yeah, that's cool, but here's what we have. We're going to explain to you why. I know you want this, but this is why what we have is better, right? And that's not how we operate. It's very important to understand what makes your role specific, what makes your role unique, and not try to shove candidates that we already know because it's easier for us in there. You know what I mean? Like, I will say that I'm very proud that the way we do searches, we start with people we know first, of course, before we go make new friends. But if there's an area we've never worked on before, we have no problem getting busy and finding those people because. I don't know what it is about the team, but we just like to be authentic. And so we reach out to candidates. We're very transparent about what the value of the offer is. I'm not talking just economically. And we also don't just sell a role. We sell the organization. 
Because at this level, it's not just about that job. That's the entry point into what your future looks like. But I think that honestly, a lot of firms, they just, it's more like, here's what we have. And we're going to give you what we have versus we're going to go out and get you exactly what you want. And you checked that box for us. So so maybe moving toward conclusion, Kyle, you know, I think about any industry and we travel in financial services, more specifically alternative investments. And if I look at the big asset owners, asset allocators in this space, there's smaller groups, particularly in the public pension plan space, they've done a much better job around more diverse representation of the senior levels, both at the board and then at the staff level. And if I look at the candidates taking the CHI exam, they're becoming more and more diverse. And that's a very, very good thing. For us to answer that bell, our responsibility is to make sure we have a diverse thought process on our side as well. And there's more work to be done, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And I think this is probably a message to every organization out there because the demographics are getting older. The succession of positions at the board and the management level in, in almost any company will be flashing greater diversity. So to not be thinking about that around your product, around your approach, around your strategic planning is a major, major blind spot. And, and I think this is an important reminder about why diversity of workforce matters. And it's not about the quantitative checking of boxes, as you alluded to a moment ago. Have I ever told you about Bubba, Bill? No. Okay. When I say diversity, sometimes people assume women, people of color. It's like, yes, but I mean true diversity. So here's what I would say. And I've told this to people in the tech space. Instead of say, you're looking for someone and like, all right, we want diversity. But the diversity is just like a black or a brown or Asian person who's gone to Wharton and Harvard and Stanford versus like a different mind thought. So you're going to get some diversity there, but whatever, it's going to be somewhat homogeneous. And one of the things we hear about is people, everyone's entitled, right? Like, hey, I went to Wharton and Stanford. So what are you going to do for me, employer? Bubba, he graduated number one in his class in computer science from University of Nebraska, right? But cool startups don't come to University of Nebraska. So we took a job in IT at Cargill or Monsanto, one of the companies that come, right? He would cut off his left arm to go work for a Silicon Valley startup, right? But they don't come to him. He is not going to show up like this. You can't see me. With his arms crossed and feeling entitled, he's going to be like, what can I do? How can I help? Et cetera. But besides that, also important is he has knowledge that most of the people who work, and let's be honest, it is typically coastal, they don't know what people are thinking about on farms or in middle America and all that good stuff. So like, I think that there is an opportunity to have someone who thinks differently and might be like, hey, oh, this product we're working on, this would be really cool because one of the problems is keeping track of all the cows in the, the pasture when you've got hundreds of them. I'm just making that thing up, right? But that is what I think is important. And so to get to your point, I would love to see organizations stop just focusing on their core schools or the, the ones they always go to. Because my thought is this, I would rather have the number one student, Bubba, right? University of Nebraska in computer science than someone who is middling at MIT, right? Like you got the name, you don't have the drive, you don't have the ambition, you don't have the skills. And so I think that is a huge way that organizations could do that. It's just instead of just like, oh, we're going to go accept anyone we can get from an Ivy League. Maybe you just go to like, I don't know, the top 10% at state schools, people who don't get those opportunities, HBCUs, things like that. You're going to get rock star candidates, people who are excited and they're like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And just the amount of entitlement that some of our clients see will dissipate very quickly because it's a new way of thinking. It's someone who's excited to be there and add value and someone honestly who wants to prove themselves, right? Like I think a lot of that is kind of stopped. 
I know she got some flack when she said it last year, year before, but Kim Kardashian wasn't wrong. A lot of times people don't want to work. They want the money. They want the accolades, but they don't actually want to roll up the sleeves and get busy and do it because they figure you hired me. I'm here for you. That's enough. And that is not. Mm -mm. Yeah, I I think that's excellent advice. And I began my career, not began early stages with Bear Stearns and people that came from these big Ivy League schools went to work in the front office and people that didn't were in the mid and back office. And, And I worked a lot with the folks in the mid and back office as an internal auditor. And I will tell you firsthand, these were people that understood how the organization worked. And in many cases, the work ethic was excellent. And I think for employers, maybe some of the most obvious solutions are right in front of their nose in the middle and back office or in some of these maybe less big name schools. And I think it's great advice. If you want to be successful, you've got to disrupt your thought process as well. Well, the other thing, Bill, that I always thought was funny is this. Let's say you're smart enough to get into Harvard. Your parents make enough money that you don't get need-based, right? But they're not so wealthy that they can say, oh, we're going to drop half a million dollars in four years of undergrad, right? So instead, you go to University of Amherst, Massachusetts, full ride, or you go to, I don't know, Ohio University or some great state school, right? I almost wonder if people should start putting their LinkedIn like, hey, you know, I did go to Ohio State, but if it makes you feel better, I was accepted into Yale, except my, you know what I mean? Like the money thing didn't work out, right? Because that's another way that I think you get that kind of elitism that we don't necessarily always consider with the schooling is that there's a lot of this that goes into it. So don't assume that that person couldn't get in. Sorry, my parents were like too successful, but not enough unsuccessful. So I took this, right? So I literally joked about it, but I don't know if that's something LinkedIn should do just to say like, hey, I got into Harvard if it makes you feel better, but I decided to go here. Yeah. And I think it does cut both ways. And I think for the aspiring employee or person early in their career, recognizing that maybe these are the rules of engagement and as much as we want the employer to change them, I think they need to be as much of a self-advocate as they possibly can because many of these job openings will have maybe hundreds or thousands of resumes and it puts the employer in a position where they have to be very very quantitative about the first cut and maybe it is a handful of universities and uh, you've got to really go out there and try to find an opening to these organizations and building a network. Because I think that's the other issue too, Kyle, when you get out of some of these big name schools, the power of the network is not nearly as strong as well. But I think the benefits of LinkedIn and and searching your school and your college or university and finding alumni that have done reasonably well and gotten to the higher rungs of careers, that might be an approach as well. So I think it's good advice for both the employer and the inspiring employee. That's literally what I counsel anyone who's looking for a role. I'm like, oh, where'd you go to school? And don't just think about the people that you know. Think about the person who graduated 20 years before you who's now that CEO, because I found in my, like you said, you couldn't have said a better bill. But people write me, all you got to do is put something like boiler up, what we say at Purdue. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to read the email. You got me. You know what I'm saying? So like, that is so important. People like similarity and it's a way in where it's just a normal like, oh, hello, dear sir, I'm writing you to d- delete. Yep. No, I think that's great advice. So maybe we'll leave it there, Kyle. Thanks for your insights. I think this is helpful both in terms of the search uh, business overall and where we are with DNI, and we have some work to do there too. But perhaps step one is raising awareness, and we certainly have done a lot of that. And then now we've got to move toward sustainable action, and sustainable is an important qualifier there. So thanks for all you do, and uh, enjoy the conversation. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. 
Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. Thank you.